We, as a church, are a part of the Southern Baptist Convention and the Acts 29 Church Planting Network. And as part of the Southern Baptist Convention, the reason why we are part of that is because, <coughs> excuse me, it's the largest sending, missionary sending organization um, on the planet. And uh, we believe that that is extremely important as a, a church that is designed around mission church uh, to be a sending people. And we, we love to have partnerships um, across the street and across the ponds um, in order to see the gospel spread. But in that, there is a pastor who has been connected to the Acts 29 Network and to the Southern Baptist Convention, and his name is J.D. Greer, and he's the pastor of the Summit Church in, in Raleigh, North Carolina, and he's our current Southern Baptist Convention president, and, and two weeks ago, he was speaking at the convention, and this is what he said. He said, the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that the gospel is of first importance. That implies that the other things can be that other things can be important, but they shouldn't be a barrier to the main thing. The power to do in the Christian life comes only from being soaked in the fuel of what has been done. That is why the gospel has to above all, he said, has to, has to be that, and that a church without the gospel at the center is a church without power. Over a year and a half now, we've been looking at the church at Ephesus. And now for the last six months, um, not only did we cover last year all of the book of Ephesians, but over the last six months we have been, been looking at this letter um, to its pastor in 1 Timothy, and we wrapped up 1 Timothy, and Pastor Todd preached on the beginning of 2 Timothy, and we see inside of this idea that at the center of the church must be the gospel, that we as a people can have lots of preferences, that we as a people, that there are what we call third-tier issues, second-tier issues, and then there's first-tier issues, and that first-tier issue is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And everything inside of this congregation and everything outside of this congregation that is not of God would want to try to steal and rob you and this church from the centrality of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I don't know if you've ever been a part of a church split, but they are typically not over the gospel. It is typically over the color of carpet or a style of music or something that the pastors did or did not do in order to please the congregation. Many of these, you know, again, third tier issues, second tier issues are at the, the center of conflict, and yet it is not the gospel. My cards on the table this morning absolutely love. 2 Timothy. It's one of my favorite books in all of the Old Testament. And, and as I've been preparing for sabbatical, I want you to know I felt this tension that one, I'm not going to get to preach some of these texts, but also that I'm not going to get to hear some of these texts preached by our faithful pastors and leaders. I love this letter. And the reason why I love this letter is that it's about a, a pastor who's probably in his 60s named Paul. 
and he's writing um, to another pastor, his protege, named Timothy, who's probably in his 30s. One is about to absolutely physically die for the sake of the gospel, and the other one feels like he is dying because of the weight of pastoring. Do you see that connection? One is physically, as you learned last week if you were here, Paul is writing this letter from a, not Roman house arrest, but he is writing this letter from imprisonment. It was also a place where, where Peter was imprisoned at one time as well. This is literally a, a hole in the ground. And Paul is writing this letter as he is a standing trial for preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he knows that his time is about up. Brother knows he is about to die for the sake and cause of Christ. He is about to physically die. And yet, there is a pastor who's, who's young and probably has still many li- uh, life left to live within him. Lots of ministry left within this brother Timothy. And yet, Timothy is struggling. He, he feels like he is dying under the weight of pastoring. Paul is in prison, physically in prison, and yet he is encouraging a free man who is imprisoned by fear. Do we get that paradox? Do we get that tension this morning? These are Paul's last known written words before you. And who does he want to write? A pastor is who, who is immensely discouraged. A pastor who is over the church that Paul helped to plant. A, a, a church that was told, be in Christ. In the book of Ephesians. This church whom Paul spent three years with. He he loved this church. He planted this church. And yet, five, six, seven years down the road, this church is absolutely falling apart. And the anxiety caused by that falling apart is destroying this young preacher. And that's why I love this letter. Paul's last words. Timothy is discouraged because of all the issues that are not coming from outside of the church, but are coming from inside of the church. This spiritual pastor, this this spiritual father, this pastor, this co-laborer, this mentor of his, this earthly hero, if you will, of this young pastor, is, is found himself in a Roman prison awaiting to be executed. And the life and ministry, I don't know if you've gotten this or not, but things don't often go as planned. Are you a person of great expectations? Some people aren't. But if you're like me and you're a person of great expectation, and I've, I've lovingly given this gift to my daughter, which is a curse to me. All right. 
is that when, if you're a person that has high expectations, then that doesn't matter if it's over a meal or over your kids or over a vacation or over whatever it is inside of your life. If you're a person of high expectations and then those expectations don't get met, then you are a ruined individual for a while, for a season. Man, I, I struggle with that. And I've, I've quickly learned that in all of my life, 41 years as of tomorrow, Man, life has not gone the way that I had planned it. I stood up in my senior year of high school, let me go back just a couple of years, and they gave me an award on the last day. Cutest couple, you know, because I was tall, dark, and handsome then. Best dressed, Eric Baker. Most likely to succeed, Eric Baker. And I, I've quickly realized I'm still part of the cutest couple because my wife is like a hundred on a scale of one to ten. And she overshadows my lurchness. Okay? Um, best dressed. Once you get this big, they only make a certain style of clothes for you. All right. Most likely to succeed. And I pastor a church. You think about things with your kids. You think about things within your family. You think about, man, this is what the car I'm going to drive. This is the house that I'm going to live in. Me and Laura, we were excited as, as newlyweds. We're going to have our, our 2.5 kids, whatever that is in America. And man, life is going to be grand. We are going to travel the world. We're going to see all these things. Life is going to have bumps and bruises along the way. Church, plant the church, man. If you just preach the gospel, they will come. And if you just preach the gospel, then, then people will be in your city just oozing to hear the goodness and the greatness of God. And if you haven't noticed yet, things do not always turn out the way that you expected them to. Think about Timothy for a moment, folks. He's watching his mentor in the fourth quarter of life. And where is he? He's in his 60s, and he's in a hole in the ground. The temptation here is to do what? The temptation here is to quit. Is this worth it? Why, why do I want to go through this? If, if my mentor, if, if my pastor, if my friend, if this is the way that, that he goes out in the fourth quarter and, and, and he, he appears by all earthly standards, is, is lost. He's losing the game. He's in a sewage hole. And he's going to be killed. Eventually, Paul's going to be headed for preaching the gospel. And yet, as Paul is writing this, as a man enslaved to a man enslaved in different ways, he tells us in verse 8, Therefore, do not be ashamed. Do not be ashamed, Timothy. 
Do not be ashamed. Do not have an attitude of fear and a, a cowardly demeanor, but, but rather the spirit and the, of power and of discipline. This is what he's saying to this man. Do not be ashamed of this gospel. Do not be ashamed of the situations that the gospel will often put you in if you are being faithful to it, young Timothy. For all accounts purposes, that's the, that appears to be the temptation of Timothy. How much more can I take? I mean, this is before emails and text messages. It's before social media. It's before Twitter. This is before phone calls. And in all of this turmoil within the church that, it, that is surrounding around Timothy, he, he's got to be feeling, man, all of this, is this worth the trouble? Because look how it ends up anyway. And yet, what we see from Paul is what? What we hear from Paul here in these words is that we're going to learn is that, that many have abandoned Paul. See, many have shamed Paul, this letter tells us. Many who were faithful traveling companions, many who were faithful men walking alongside of, of Paul as he was preaching and teaching the gospel, that once he got thrown into the Roman prison, when this stuff just got real. And when it got real, they became ashamed of Paul and his leadership that this Jesus, if you follow him and you continue to get put in prison after prison after prison, if you continue to be shamed from the culture, then man, we are going to leave you, Paul. We're abandoning you, Paul. To the point where Paul is going to tell us that Pretty much everyone has left him but one guy. They were gone. And yet Paul is saying to Timothy, you must not, you cannot drift toward timidity. Timothy, you, you cannot be ashamed. Do not be ashamed of Jesus. Do not be ashamed of this gospel. Do not be ashamed of me because I am in prison. I'm not embarrassed because of this. Have you ever been around parents who have kids in prison? Well, John, he's the president of a, of a company, and uh, you know, Jack, he, he's in prison. Why is that? Because there has a tendency to be a lot of shame that comes with that, that situation. So Paul is telling him that the gospel is the most in most important thing, and yet within this culture, the gospel of Jesus Christ was a, a scandalous propaganda against the ancient culture and its world. Even the term Christian, we must understand that its original terminology means little Christ, and it was a derogatory term. Oh, look at those people. <laughs> They're little Jesuses. They're little Christ walking around. One of the, the earliest things that we have, a depiction of Jesus upon a cross, is, is actually found in a cave, and it's a cave drawing of this crucifixion of, of Jesus. And yet, on Jesus' head upon the cross is that of a donkey. 
And it gives the mention of a guy's name because he's bowing down before it and it says so-and-so worships his God. We were considered to be, you know, um, uh, you know, that we ate human flesh because of the communion table. This was the reality. This would, man, this would discourage you. This would easily cause a faithful believer to be embarrassed and to be struggling with these sorts of things. See, the Christian way spits into the face of popular belief. In Mark 8.38, it says, In calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up of his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life would lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's sake, for, for what does it profit a man if he gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For, for what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him, will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. See, this, this idea of being ashamed of the gospel, being embarrassed of the gospel, keeping our mouths and our lives shut because of the gospel is anti-gospel. Do you understand, friends, that the seriousness of what Jesus is saying here is that if you are ashamed of me, I too will be ashamed of you. It is revealing that you do not know the gospel and this Jesus from which you talk about or don't talk about. It's a serious, serious thing that we must understand, that we, we must get. Paul is in prison and his closest friends are leaving him. Why? Because they are ashamed of the gospel and they are ashamed of the faithful servant. Is this not the picture that we see of Jesus in the gospel of Matthew? Remember in the gospel of Matthew, on the night before Jesus would die, he's sitting in the, in, in the room with his, his closest allies, his closest friends, and, and, and sitting close to him is a man named Peter. And Jesus begins to tell Peter, what, you're going to deny me tonight, Peter. You're going to deny me tonight, Peter. And, and Peter begins to, to swell up in boasting, like maybe you're doing right here, right now. I would never do it. 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 And yet we'll see by the end of the night that literally that the, the Bible would tell us in Matthew chapter 20, 26, it says this. Now Jesus has been arrested. Peter and all the disciples have fled Jesus. And it says this. Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard and a servant girl came up to him and said, you also were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. And, and when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him. And she said to the bystanders, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. After a little while, the bystanders came up to him and said to Peter, Certainly, you two are, are one of them. For your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not 
know him. And immediately the rooster crowed and Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times and went out and wept bitterly. See, inside of here, it is really easy to proclaim, Jesus paid it all. It is really easy inside of here to say, all hell, the power of Jesus' name. It is easy to do that inside the the huddle here with Jesus and all of his super friends. But it is different when you you are standing at the water cooler. When you are walking on a campus. When you are sitting in a cubicle next to someone. When you are in your neighborhood, it is much easier for us to be like Peter, who within just a matter of moments, go from, I will never, I will go to death for you, Jesus, to literally asking for a curse to be placed upon his life as he swears that he does not know that man. And we love to beat up Peter, don't we? But brothers and sisters, let us face it. We are him. We are Him. See, silent Christianity is counterfeit Christianity. We, by our very natures to be Christians, are proclaimers. To consistently deny, to consistently deny Christ in the public square is clinging to, to, to biblical truth even when it becomes unpopular. It is this, this mindset of, of that we must not deny Him. But we must cling to the truth of God's Word, even if it is unpopular. I know this, or I question us on this, because spend any time talking about a gender issue, homosexuality, abortion, any of these things that are often uh, you know, proclaimed by the pundits in, 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 in popular culture, any of these sorts of things, or the, again, the person sitting next to you, or, or the family member who is wrestling and struggling with and is a homosexual, and yet you as a follower of Jesus, me as a follower of Jesus, do we simply have the opportunity to remain quiet and, and just ignore these sorts of things? Or no, in conversation, in love, in, in relationship with those individuals, our friends, and our family are we going to preach the gospel or are we going to be timid are we going to cowardly deny see brothers and sisters we 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 are for things and we are against things not because you and i get to determine if we're for or against them Jesus has already done that in His Word. And it's either right or it is wrong. And we don't determine that. That Jesus does. So the issue, brothers and sisters, if, if in preaching the Gospel, if we have to declare that something is sin, one, make sure that it is a biblical sin, but then in boldness and compassion for those whom you love, if they deny you and they ostracize you and they persecute you and they take your life, ultimately their issue is not with you, but it is with an almighty God. It's not, am I right? It's, is the Bible true? And that's what we've got to cling to. 
That's what we've got to hold to. And yet we, we see that many of us have grown cold and silent because we, we do not want to rock the boat or, or have people think less of us. And yet in Matthew chapter 10, verse 32, so anyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whosoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Brothers and sisters, there is always and has been a growing hostility toward Jesus, the gospel, and his church. The question is, is which side are you on? Shame of the gospel paralyzes biblical faithfulness. Shame of the gospel. Shame of Jesus. I mean, haven't you ever been around an older person who really loves Jesus? And you walk into the K. Rogers, that's Kroger, for those of us who call it correctly. And they'll share the gospel with the stump. And you'll be like, man, I hope he doesn't go into this Jesus thing. We ain't got time for that. We got to go. Right? What is that? That's it's shame. I remember riding on an airplane once, coming back from some of my doctoral work, coming back from, I think, Seattle at this time. And I was on an airplane sitting next to the girl, and again, I'm, I'm a pastor, right? But more, more than being a pastor, I'm a follower of Jesus. And I remember sitting here and having this general conversation, what does everybody ask you? Where are you from? What do you do? She asked me where I was from, this young Jewish girl. And then she asked me the question, what do you do? And immediately, I felt shame and tension. What am I going to say? And embarrassingly, you know what I told that girl? I am a spiritual advisor. You know what that was? Unfaithfulness. Because you know what our world doesn't care anything about? If you're spiritual. Everyone is spiritual. Atheism is not growing. Pagan spirituality is. Right? We feel that tension. Go to your high school reunion. What do you do? Man, I'm a missionary. Oh. People, this is, our, this is the tension of which, which we live in, is, is that very thing, is to be ashamed. And yet, what does the Bible call us to do? To not be ashamed. Paul is saying, preach the gospel no matter what. Preach the gospel no matter what. The second thing that Paul tells Timothy here is to, in, in verse 8, but share in suffering for the gospel, but share in suffering for the gospel. See, many of us in this room today, maybe we're going to struggle to really grasp the, the meatiness of this particular te text because we have not yet suffered for the gospel. We've not suffered for the gospel. 
Now, we'll often talk about, and we'll take the passages out of context that are dealing with with generalized suffering, and that is not to belittle those things. But brothers and sisters in here, there are many of us that have been unfaithful in proclamation of the gospel to the point to where where we have not experienced any sort of long-term suffering because of it. Your old friends are still your friends. Your family still loves you. And yet Jesus is saying, no, there is a sharing. We as Christians are not to be ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of salvation. And in that, for us to be Christians, you are proclaimers. We are proclaimers, not just pastors. But also as Christians, we are in some way trying to create a Christianity in America that is void of the suffering for the sake of it. And Jesus is saying, man, if you're a follower of Jesus, if Paul is saying, man, if you, if you love this Jesus and you love this gospel, then you will suffer for it. Can we imagine just for a moment, not even the cross of Jesus, but the very back of Jesus due to the whipping and the Roman flogging? Could you imagine what his back must have looked like? And yet, we will see in just a a, a little bit time past that, we see another man. We see Paul. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul tells about all the crazy things that have happened to him because he preaches the gospel. He's not doing this because he's a thief. He's not endured this imprisonment and these beatings because he stole something or he's murdered somebody. He's enduring all of these suffering things. Why? Because he loves Jesus and he loves the gospel. That's why he he can be beaten. Forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Paul was stoned. He was shipwrecked night and day adrift at sea. And Paul goes on and on and on talking about all the terrible things that have happened to him. Not because he's a jerk, but because he proclaims the gospel of Jesus Christ. And because of it, sin, Satan, and death is seeking to steal, kill, and destroy this man. Imagine Jesus is back for a moment. Or like one of my professors used to tell me, look at Paul's. This professor used to say to me, man, if you say that you follow Jesus, then show me your back. Mission Church, show me your back. Who is out to get you? Because your faithful commitment and dedication to the cross of Jesus. And if you can say no one, then I lovingly tell you that, that, brothers and sisters, you're doing it wrong. You're doing it wrong. We're doing it wrong. Show me your back. If we can't suffer for small things, like getting up a little bit earlier, to get to church. How would we ever suffer in the big things? See, I think about 
the idea here. You know, what if Paul, he should have, brother should have just retired about five years earlier. Right? Ride a camel off into sunset. Right? Go to Peter, learn how to fish in the Sea of Galilee. I mean, think of all the things that Paul would have not gotten in trouble for if brother would have retired. Because around this time, he's about 66 years of age. If he would have just retired about six years earlier, brother would not have to experience all the things that he is currently experiencing. Yet this is an older man, fourth quarter, twilight of life, and he finds himself in a hole. And yet he is not discouraged. Yet he is not shame-filled. He, he didn't just say, man, man just, just keep serving faithfully and one day, Timothy, just retire. I understand, brothers and sisters, that comes a time in life where things may change and you may slow down. But I'm telling you what, we will never see inside of Scripture people retiring from the ministry of Jesus Christ. I think about Alan Bullard in our church. Successful businessman retires from that, could easily spend his, his days doing things that he loves. And yet I've seen that man enduring great um, you know, congestive heart failure, Parkinson's disease, other dietary issues, many issues with his wife, Miss Diane, and yet I've seen him countless week after week after week after week after week wheel an oxygen tank into Hope House Ministries, set in a closet that they call the office, and look at people like they are crazy. Why? Because he's so convinced that Jesus is ultimately what they need, that if Hope House gave them all the food in the world and all the clothes in the world and gave them a free house, they would still split the gates of hell wide open if they did not know that Jesus. That's faithful finishing. That's faithful finishing. And Paul is faithful finishing here. I heard Matt Chandler say one time, he's the president of the Actually Nine Network, pastor of Village Church. He, he said, many people want Pauline theology, but they do not want Pauline pain. Christianity is suffering, not prosperity. We're, we're trying to find a faithful life and yet remove it as Christians from anything that has to do with suffering. And yet, brothers and sisters, suffering is a part of your sanctification. And suffering is by which the means that the gospel is going to go to the ends of the earth. And you say there, and you say things like, well, that's for pastors. That's for missionaries. And yet inside the book of Acts, who is the first person to die preaching? A church member named Stephen. Stoned to death. And as they did it, he worshipped Jesus. Not the professional pastor. Not the paid missionary but the faithful member in a church who would not shut up that Jesus is Lord. Suffering. This is the beauty that we see. And man, 
we only had more time this morning to look at John chapter 15, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. We can look in Acts chapter 5 where we see Peter and the disciples that they keep being pre- pre- uh, they keep preaching and they keep tell- being told don't preach anymore. They keep being put in prison and, and guess what? what? God continues to deliver them and they go right back to preaching and so their job is telling them, their government is telling them they cannot preach the gospel yet these brothers will not stop preaching the gospel to the point where they are beaten and when they get out like I would do I would be looking for a vacation somewhere and yet what happens to to Peter and these disciples they go right back to preaching are you willing to lose your paycheck to proclaim the gospel see this. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 that God's grace is sufficient for us, that when we are weak, that, that He is strong. We learn in Philippians chapter 1 verse 29, for it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ that you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake. In James 1 verse 2 through 3, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Brothers and sisters, uniting ourselves to the gospel and the church and to Jesus is risky. For those of us faithful to see it, the, the, excuse me, for those of us faithful to it, we see the effects remaining faithful uh, uh, to Jesus above all. And there is, there is rec- relational, cultural, financial risk due to our devotion to Jesus. And yet the the gospel compels us to count the cost of following Jesus. Yet many have laid claim to salvation, but instead of pouring out our lives in the spreading of the gospel, we have become professionals of holding on to Christianity as a worldview, but completely devoid of its practice. Brothers and sisters, our lack of evangelism reveals either that we are unsaved or that we are being willfully disobedient, which if continues means what? We're unsaved. Again, you and I are not saved by how many times we share the gospel, by how many times you've baptized someone, by, by how many disciples you have made. But brothers and sisters, we must ask the question, why haven't we? You're not saved by your works. But faith works. We must ask ourselves serious questions as Mission Church. It is, it is, it is idiotic to call ourselves Mission Church when few of us are engaged in it. Show me your back. But... I want us to understand this, though, and this is the the last truth here. Why? Why is it worth it? Why is it worth being ashamed for? Why is it worth being, being impaled upon a stake? 
Why, why is it worth having your head cut off? And brothers and sisters, it, by most mathematics that I've learned and statistics that I've learned, that there are more Christian martyrs taking place every year, like in 2019, than there was in ancient times. It just doesn't happen here very often. And, 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 and I'm, I'm being forceful in those first two points, because I want you to understand the last one. The truth of the Gospel empowers us to remain faithful in our suffering for the sake of the Gospel. See, brothers and sisters, you and I, we don't suffer for suffering's sake. I don't believe that this means that we need to run into the Muslim mosque down the road here and declare that Allah is a demon. Is that true? Yes. But he also caused us to, to use wisdom. You know what it does mean, though? It means you suffering by giving up your time, talent, and treasure to learn and to know your Muslim neighbor. Or, or even more so, to give up your comforts of the American lifestyle and, and go live in a Muslim country, giving yourself and befriending those people and sharing the gospel with them and knowing they may take your life. But if they do, the gospel is worth it. It is worth it. Listen to the truth of the gospel. Verse 9. Who saved us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of His own purpose and grace, which He has given us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifest through the appearance to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed preacher and apostle and teacher. Be reminded this morning, it is God who has saved you. It is God who has called you and I to a holy calling. He reminds us in this passage again that it is not by our own works. If salvation is contingent upon something you or I could do, then guess what? None of us would be saved. See, brothers and sisters, we must once again learn and be reminded of the depths of our sin and yet the compassion of an all-holy God. Watch and notice. Look how, how God literally flexes on these pages His glory and His goodness that He has bestowed upon Paul, that He has bestowed upon Timothy, that He has bestowed upon those who were once His enemies are now His Heirs. He, he loves them. And because of that, how could we ever be ashamed? How could we not say, kill me? If, if that's the greatest thing you've got, then bring it on. If you're going to abandon me because of this truth, then abandon me. If you're going to leave me, if you're going to hate me, if you're going to spew lies and, and whispers and, 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 and curse me and all those things because of the person and work of Jesus, then bring on those things. Because why Jesus did not die for the possibility of you and I being saved. No, He died to save us. And it's when we understand the depths of our salvation, then, then it, it causes within us the inability to not preach. This truth. He saves you. He sanctifies you. He justifies you. And Paul is in a shame-filled place. But what is he? Not ashamed. 
you get pulled over and they put your picture in the newspaper. Are you ashamed of that? Yes. Paul is in a shameful place. And yet what? He is not ashamed. He, he, he welcomes the suffering. Why? Because and he's trying to encourage this young pastor who's enduring suffering from right now inside of the church. And he's telling him, keep fighting, Timothy. Don't give up, Timothy. Keep preaching. It doesn't matter what they say about your pastoring. It doesn't matter what they say about, about your, your calling. It doesn't matter about what they're we're saying about a lot of different things. But you, Timothy, you stay at the center. And at the center is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why is it worth it? Well, this passage begs the question, doesn't it? Is Jesus worth it? Is the gospel worth it? Is he worth the name calling? The loss of friends? The loss of family? The cost of losing your job? Possibly being imprisoned or possibly even be killed? And yet, with this, listen to this passage. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10 through 11. For it was fitting that He, speaking of Jesus, for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For He who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. Listen to this. Let this be a warm blanket upon our cold hearts. That is why He is not ashamed to call them brothers. You know, if anybody wanted to be ashamed, could it not be God? Thankful that, let's not think too much about this, but of the shameful things you have done this week. If there was anyone who, who wanted to feel, man, I'm, I'm embarrassed by my kids. I feel shame toward my kids. Would it not be Him? And yet what does Hebrews tell us? For those of us who are in Christ Jesus, He is not ashamed of you. And that nugget of truth alone should cause us to leap and joy with joy. It should cause our hands to be raised high. It should motivate us alone to go out here to everyone that we come in contact with and preach the gospel. Not because it saves us, but because it has. Brothers and sisters, are you ashamed of the gospel? Brothers and sisters, friends, are you suffering for the gospel? And either way, is it worth it? Because if it's worth it, then let's get to work. I think he is. Let's pray.